I'm going to look at Psalm 90 this morning. I uh, come to this psalm about every four years. It is one of those psalms that I can remember when it impacted my life. It was uh, in the late 80s, I was sitting in chapel at uh, Westminster Seminary working on uh, a Master of Theology degree and Dr. Bruce Walkie was preaching in chapel that morning. And I can remember as he opened Psalm 90 that my heart was sort of turned upside down, that God was just working in me uh, about the investment of my life for eternity. And uh, to the chagrin of some, uh, it was at that point that I decided to uh, leave a very comfortable uh, suburban uh, church and move to Brooklyn, New York with uh, our family. Uh, I'm not saying that Psalm 90 will do that to you. Uh, please, we want you to hang around here. But it is a psalm that uh, should cause us to examine whether we are investing our lives for eternity. Listen to the words of Moses this morning, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us 
and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We're going to listen carefully this morning to the words of an aged, godly man who has learned some difficult lessons concerning the investment of his life. As you know, Moses had the privilege as well as the burden of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt to the border of the promised land. He had the burden and the privilege of leading them in wandering through a wilderness under God's judgment because they did not have faith to believe his promises. He watched them die day by day. Probably at least 180 people every day dying for 40 years in the wilderness. In some sense, Moses could look at them and we could look at them and say that these 40 years are wasted years because any years that are lived in rebellion against God or out of the will of God are essentially wasted years. So Psalm 90 is a psalm written by an old man probably at the end of his life. He had looked at those horrible years in the wilderness, and yet he's anticipating for the new generation, the ones that will enter into the promised land. He's anticipating something different, and he prays this prayer for them, especially for those who will lead that new generation into the promised land. We have the introduction of the psalm, verses 1 through 4, the body of the psalm, verses 5 through 12, and then the benediction of the psalm, verses 13 through uh, 17 through 18. But if you look at verse 17 with me for a moment, it sort of capsulizes his, his desire for this future generation. The beginning of verse 17 speaks of the yearning of a dying, a mortal man for the favor of God. He prays that the favor of God may be upon us. He wants this blessing, that which is pleasant and delightful and lovely, that can only come from God. He wants this on this new generation. May the favor of God be upon us. And then he speaks as a worker, as a leader who has, who realizes that he is in a fleeting world, that his life is ending and his work is ending. And he's pleading with God for the perpetuity of his work, for the lastingness of his work. Establish our work, he repeats twice. Establish the work of our hands. He has this fear 
hear that all that he has done in leading, all that he has done in bringing the people out and, and leading them through the wilderness and leading them to that land, all that he has done in teaching them will be lost unless God brings his favor upon his people. And the consequence of his favor is that we can have a work that is lasting. We can have a work that has eternal value. I realize that all of our work is not of the nature of Moses. What a responsibility he had leading millions of people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, uh, to the border of the promised land. Our work is not his work. And sometimes when I talk with Christians, they feel like because they're not pastors or missionaries or deacons or elders that the significance of their work is diminished. I remember uh, talking with a friend of mine, a Christian businessman one day, and he was telling me about a, uh, a conversation he had with a woman at a particular event. And uh, she got talking to him and realized that he was a mature believer. He had good theology. And uh, she sort of assumed that he was a preacher, that, that, that he had gone to seminary. And, and uh, she asked him, she, she said, so you're a preacher? And he said, no, I'm uh, working on my master's degree in business development. I'm a, I'm a Christian businessman. And she looked at him and said, well, you got to be careful because business is, is the road to hell. Uh, You've you, 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 you be very careful about that. And it was like, he said, as I stood there, it was like she, she looked at my work as insignificant. If I was a preacher, she would have elevated me. But as a Christian businessman, she just saw that as literally, she said, it's a road to hell. But he knew. He knew that any work that is not contrary to the word of God is a work in which God can be glorified. That any what we call, what I call an avocation in life. My vocation in life, my calling in life is the same that you have. And that is to live a life that glorifies God. We all have the same vocation in life. But then we have avocations, another place in life where we work and we invest our gifts and our talents. My avocation is I'm a pastor. Your avocation may be you're a, a plumber or you're a doctor or you're an engineer or you're, you're an Uber driver. That's your avocation, but your calling is to glorify God in everything you do, whether you're a driver or a doctor or a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A wise man once said this. He said, for the Christian, there is no distinction between the secular and the sacred. All ground is holy ground. I remember preaching in a large Korean church in New York. 
And before I could go onto the pulpit area and enter the pulpit to preach, I had to take my shoes off. Because in their thinking, this is a holy place, a sacred place. And so I could not preach in that place with shoes that had walked on dirty secular ground. And unfortunately, that is the way many of us look at life. That there's something more sacred about being a missionary or being a pastor or being an elder than there is about going to your eight to five job every day, which God has given you. He's given you the gifts, the ability to do it, and in which God wants you to believe this is sacred day ground and somehow you can invest your life for something that has eternal value. Abraham Kuyper would have put it another way. He says there is not one piece of single ground that is what he called hermeneutically sealed off from the rest of the world. And what he was saying was there isn't a particular piece of geography or place or vocation in life that is particularly sacred. He goes on to say that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, this is mine. Whether you're the doctor in the operator room or the nurse by the bedside or the CNA that is changing a diaper or the plumber that's working on pipes, there's not an inch on planet earth in which the sovereign Lord does not say, this is mine. So I want to talk this morning about having a life in which God is pouring out his favor and he is establishing the work of our hands. He is giving lastingness. He's giving eternal value to the work that we are doing. For Moses, as I read his words, the most important thing about a worker is not his education or his skill or his choice of avocation, but rather the most important thing is his theology and how his theology is affecting his heart. So from Moses' words this morning, I want you to gain four things about the kind of work that God wants you to be doing day in and day out. First of all, he calls us to work with a heart of worship. Again, if we were to read the psalm, you would notice that the body of the psalm, verses 5 through 12, is sort of enveloped by the introduction and the benediction, both of which speak about God. Sort of saying that this is what should envelope, encapsulate our entire life. It should begin with God and end with God and just be wrapped completely in God. The introduction talks about the person of God. 
The psalmist lived with an awareness that the eternal creator God precedes all of our work and he outlives all of our work. That the only eternal is the living triune God. The universe is not eternal. Your work is not eternal. Anything that you are wrapping your life around today, if it is, if it is apart from union with Christ, it is not eternal. I remember my dad, whenever he would write me in Bible college, at the end of every letter, he would always write this statement. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. He realized that only a life in union with God through faith in Jesus Christ is a life that has an eternal value, a work that is established. And if you don't have this life, then the sad thing is that everything you're investing in, everything you're giving your life to today will come to an end. It has no eternal eternal value. At the other end of the bracket, the benedictory part of the psalm, he reminds us that only the eternal creator can be a genuine and constant source of satisfaction. Our work will never be the source of satisfaction. But only the creator satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days as much as we should want to have a work in which we find pleasure. All of us know, and let me say I love preaching, I love pastoring, I've done it for over 45 years preaching the gospel. But there are times I feel like I'd rather drive a truck. <laughs> but even though I may get weary of the work, my, again, I'll quote my dad. He, he would say, John, you may get weary in the way, but you'll never get weary. Don't ever get weary of the way. So even though you're, the work itself may not be always satisfying and gratifying, the presence of Christ, the joy of Christ, the satisfaction of Christ should always be satisfying. And if you are driving a truck and not preaching the gospel, you should drive a truck to the glory of God in the presence of God, enjoying the grace of God. Only the eternal creator can be a genuine and constant source of satisfaction. And he does this. He gives us himself. He gives us this satisfaction, not because we deserve it. The psalmist tells us he does it in pity. Have pity on your servants. We don't cry out to God and say, God, I'm good. Make me happy. I'm good. I deserve 
to be at peace. I deserve happiness. We don't cry out to God like that. We say, God, I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve peace. I don't deserve happiness. Have pity on me. He does this because of his steadfast love. His covenantal love, he keeps his promise to his people. Satisfy in the, us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Only the, he can be that never-ending, eternal uh, source of satisfaction in life. What we should desire is that in our work, he would display his powerful work. Sometimes it's easy for us to get a grandiose notion about our abilities, our intelligence, our experience, our competence, our importance. We put together that that curriculum vita or that resume and we list all of our accomplishments and degrees and uh, awards and our work experience and we and we feel like this is what gives value to the work that I do and the psalmist says no we want to see your powerful work in our work. Bring your favor upon us. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and you establish, you give longevity and lastingness to the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalmist reminds us that it's only as we are related to the living God and in union with the living God that our work can become meaningful and have value for eternity. And as, as I remember Bruce Walkie uh, preaching that Wednesday morning in chapel, I can remember him talking about a life that was like a drop of water that hits a hot pavement on a summer day and dissipates and is gone in a moment. And he says that is the life that is apart from union with God through Jesus Christ. That is the wasted life that has no eternal value. Just a drop of water hitting that hot pavement and it's gone forever. But he says when you're in union with Christ, union with God through Christ, that it's a drop of water that runs into that stream that becomes part of that, that river that runs into the ocean and just goes on and on and on. It's a life of value, a life of significance because it's a life that is worshiping the living God every day. Ultimately, we know that apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one can have a life that 
is of eternal value. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that deals with our sin, that gives us the spirit, that brings us to a heart of worship so that we worship God in all of life. We work with a heart of worship, but secondly, we work with a heart of humility. We know the brevity and we know the fragility of life. Moses is dying. He lived to be 120 years old. But as older people do, they begin to realize even more how precious every day is, and it's not to be squandered. Listen again to his words. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a, as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Basically, we can say that Moses lived the last 40 years of his life in a cemetery. As I said earlier, probably on average, 180 people a day dying because all of those under over a certain age were forbidden to enter the land of Canaan of the two and a half million or so people that came out of Egypt most of them are going to die and he is seeing death upon death upon death I love preaching at funerals. You've heard me say that before. Uh, because people are thinking about the brevity of life and the uncertainty of life. I have often preached at funerals, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. I like, I prefer at a funeral to have an open casket. I like people, and I, I ask the funeral director if they will, leave it open while I'm preaching. Because I want to remind people that that could be you. You know, there's nobody in that body, but whoever was in that body is somewhere. They're living in conscious eternal enjoyment in the presence of God or they're living in conscious eternal torment in hell. They are somewhere and if that was you, where would you be? You return man to dust. Death reminds us that unless the favor of God has been upon our life and our work, that death brings an end to everything that we thought to be valuable in this world. A thousand years is but as yesterday. Your life compared to eternity is your life compared to not a thousand years but he says if you lived a thousand years and let me say 
Methuselah lived 969 years. He was the oldest man who never ever lived. But most of us don't even make one-tenth of a thousand years. So if a thousand years is as yesterday, then a thousand years is like 24 hours. That's what he's saying your life is like. But you don't live a thousand years. You maybe live a tenth of that. So your life isn't 24 hours. Your life is 2.4 hours. It's short. But it's even shorter than that because he says it's, it's like a, a watch in the night. A watch in the night is three hours. So a thousand years is like, like a three hour time period with God. But again, you don't live a thousand years. Maybe a tenth of that. So it's not even 180 minutes. It's 18 minutes. That's your life. It is, it is short, it is uncertain, it is not eternal, and you may live to 70, or by the grace of God, 80, or maybe, maybe even, as my dad, 92, but you will die. And will your life have been of any value? I like the words of the old Puritan Richard Baxter as he thinks, as he looks upon the lifestyle of God's people. He says this, he says, it is a most lamentable thing to see how most people spend their time and their energy for trifles. While God is cast aside, he who is all seems to them as nothing, and that which is nothing seems to them as good as all. It is lamentable indeed knowing that God has set mankind in such a race for heaven or hell that it is their certain end. And yet they sit down and they loiter or they run after the childish toys of the world, forgetting the prize that they should run for. Were it but possible for one of us to see this busyness as the all-seeing God does and see what most men and women the world are interested in and what they are doing every day, it would be the saddest sight imaginable. Oh, how we should marvel at their madness and lament their self-delusion. If God had never told them what they were sent into the world to do, or what was before them in another world, then there would have been some excuse. But it is his sealed word. And they profess to believe it. We need to fear making simply a temporal investment of our life. To have never, to have lived in the world as children of God and to have exhausted our time, our energies, our resources on things for which we never stop to ask, does this glorify God? You come to the end of your life. Some of you may come to the end of your life with very little. 
Some of you may come to the end of your life with a whole lot. But the question really is, did you believe the words of Jesus? Will you lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do corrupt and where thieves break through and steal? But you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Whether you have nothing at the end or a lot at the end, it won't matter when you pass from this world to the next because only a work that is done in humble reliance upon God, only a work that realizes the brevity of, of life, the fragility of life, and seeks to invest every day to the glory of God, only that work has some lasting value. Because we believe that, and we should believe that, our work can never be, become our life. We have, I hear people say, my work is my life. Well, if your work is your life, it's a sad life. Paul said, Christ is my life. My work should never, regardless of what kind of work it is, if I am in union with Christ, my work should never contribute to the brokenness of life. Not every advocation is a noble advocation. If it contributes to the brokenness of life, then it's not a work in which God can be glorified. My work should always be conscientious, filled with a sense of, of, of urgency, because in God's timetable, I only have today. I only have today. Do it now if it needs to be done. My work should always be a work that pleases God and praises God. And my work should always be done with the consciousness that those whom I work with may not be here tomorrow. We work with a heart of humility. We work with a heart of repentance. We are brought to an end by your anger, he says. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. These are sad words. He's watched a nation in rebellion, in unbelief, be banished to the wandering of the wilderness. He has watched them time and again test God, put God to the test, question the ability of God, and to experience the wrath and the judgment of God. He has watched them rebel. He knew the reality of sin, and he knew the power of God's wrath. But let me say, he knew more than that. He knew the saving grace of God. When I look at these verses, I must say that apart from Christ, this is where we live. If you don't know Christ... John 3.36 says that you live under the wrath of God. It's hovering over you. Maybe it hasn't struck you yet. But 
it's hovering over you. And if you die without Christ, that wrath of God will fall. But I look at Moses' words through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that because Christ died for my sin and rose again, that that wrath that I deserve, that I should be living under, I have been delivered from. These are the wonderful words of Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love to us while we were still sinners. We're justified by his blood. Much more, we are saved from his wrath. If we were enemies, when we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If I understand the holiness of God, properly and if I understand my sinfulness clearly then every day that I'm alive I realize that I'm not living in these words of Moses living under the wrath of God because of Jesus Christ and because I know that every work that I do is done from a grateful heart that I'm, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven, I've experienced the mercy of God. Yes, I can have that kind of, of gratitude even when the work is a dirty work or a hard work or a boring work or a tedious work or a mindless work. Whatever work it is, you're alive and you've experienced the mercy of God and your heart should be grateful, not because of the work, but because of God's powerful work of grace in your life. If you went to work this week, as much as you may have complained about not being paid enough or not being appreciated enough or you complained about how hard or how tedious the work was, perhaps you forgot that the very fact that you are alive and working in any kind of work is because God has not dealt with you after your sins nor rewarded you according to your iniquities that you are living by the mercy of God and for that you should be praising God Fourthly, we should work with a heart that yearns for wisdom. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The word number can simply mean to count, but it can also mean to sort of weigh out and to allot it properly. It's not just count your days, though I confess that every time I've preached from this psalm, I've sat down and figured if I were to live to 70, how many days do I have left? I didn't do that this time, but I 
but I figure off the top of my head, I have less than 600 days. When I first preached that psalm, I probably had 6,000 days. Teach us to weigh each day and to use it properly, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is simply living a life by God's design, by God's order. You know, if you're wise when it comes to the natural world, God's, God put order in the natural world. A wise man does not jump out of a 30-story window. A fool does. He's wise. He lives by God's design. He realizes that God established a law of gravity, though I hear today there are some that are even debating that. But, but we know that if you jump out of a 30-story window, you die. That's the law. And he has laws of economics and laws of family life and that, that work in life. And a wise man is a man who knows what God's word says about how to live, not just in the natural world, but in the spiritual world, how to have a relationship with God, how to enjoy God, how to obey God. Teach us that we may have a heart that desires to have a life that lives by your design. One ancient sage, wise man, said this. He said, we are always complaining that our days are few. And then acting as if there would be no end. And then someone else said, millions long for immortality, yet they do not know what to do with themselves on a Sunday afternoon. I want to live forever. I want to live longer. Why? To invest your life in something that dies with you? Or do you pray? May the favor of God be upon us to establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Give lasting value, eternal value to our work as we worship you, as we live humbly before you, as we live with repentant hearts before you, as we seek to have a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Let's pray together, shall we? And that's our prayer this morning, Father. That we would realize that only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ and in Christ and through Christ will last. Help us to examine the investment of our life and not to waste it wandering in the wilderness of this world, but to live it believing in your promises.
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.